So we're at part 12. We will finish 1 Peter next week. And then we're going to go on to something else. And then we'll come back to 2 Peter. But we're not going to go straight to 2 Peter. We'll do something else before. So if everybody has a handout, here's where I want us to begin tonight. I want you to think about uh, just off the top of your head, if you found out you had a week to live, what are some things that you would do? What comes to your mind as far as things that would need to be done? Maybe phone calls that you would need to make, people you'd need to go visit, conversations that would need to be had. Letters that would need to be written, I don't know what comes to your mind. But I'm sure that even when we're pretending things come to our mind, and you can imagine if it was uh, a reality of all the things. You, I don't think it would be possible for any, any of us to face imminent death in a week, and then say, well, I don't really have anything to do. You would have something you would need to do. Now let's look at this text in 1 Peter chapter 4. Part 1, you can see the end is coming. Here's what the scripture says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since... Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now there is a great illustration of when the Bible and our natural tendency or our cultural understanding or what we would think would be what we would expect the Bible to say uh, deviate in two opposite directions. You would never say this, nor would you ever think that the Bible says this. It's shocking that the opening statement is the end of all things is at hand. There's a semicolon and that one, wouldn't you expect it to say the end of all things is at hand? Make sure that you have the conversations you need to have. Make sure that you are right with God. Make sure that you have resolved this or done this or told your family members about the gospel or something. But this is not at all what anybody would ever expect, and yet this is exactly what we need to be reminded of and need to hear and need to talk about tonight. So here, Peter opens with a very sensational statement followed by what may seem to be a very unsensational response. It doesn't sound like 
what anyone would suspect would come following the end is at hand. And there's a theme here that is carried throughout the Scripture when it comes to this topic, and the topic being the return of Christ. There's a theme that runs throughout Scripture that for some reason eludes people, but let's lay it down and then build up to it. The Christian life lived in the light of the hope of Christ's return is inescapably corporate. It is inescapably corporate. That is not at all what anybody would suspect God would say to us. In the first letter to the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul speaks of the same issue. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need. Maybe I put these on the, there we go. Now concerning the times and seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now remember when we studied through 1 Thessalonians, Paul is just overwhelmed with gratitude at how amazingly well this church is doing at all of the things that they're supposed to be doing. And he says, concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need that anything be written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Then verse 3, he says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So there's a lot of tension here. Okay, then he, he goes on in the next couple of verses, and this is where he's talking about uh, the end is going to come like a thief, and that there's going to be people, we're children of the light, and there's going to be people that are children of the darkness doing things they shouldn't do, and it's going to spring upon them. He says that for those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who drink, get drunk at night. But we belong to the day, so we need to be sober and vigilant. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's how he ends. This is the final verse of this whole conversation. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. Is that what you would think the Bible would say? It's a fascinating reality. This is an example of, and there, there, I mean, believe me, there's a lot of them that come to my mind, of things that the Bible prioritizes and that the body of Christ de-emphasizes. That I feel like I'm a broken record, constantly imploring people to do things that they ought to naturally want to do and yet are continually resistant to do. And the thing about it is, is this is what's so, uh, you know, at times frustrating or bewildering about the situation is that no one would say that it's a bad thing. Everyone, every one of you and every person who was here this morning would agree, would say, oh, no, that's a good thing. 
To which I would say, so why aren't you doing it? Well, and then here comes a list of reasons or excuses or whatever the case may be. And I mean, there's a long list of them in my mind of things that the Bible puts very high. And that when I talk about them, people nod their head, but they're like, they, you know, mm, and this is one of them. This is one of them. We tend to believe that community, deep biblical community is good, helpful, but you're not going to put it on par with, you know, you have all these other things that are far more important than that. And here's the thing, you can... You'll be fine without it, with or without it. It's my personality. It's the way I'm wired. It's and, it's and here's the thing. It becomes evident in times of trouble because here's what happens. I enter into moments of trial and tragedy and struggle. And when I enter into it, this is what happens. Here's the problem. Here's the forest fire. Here's the situation. Here's the, and when I get into the situation, I say, who, who have you been talking to about this? Who, 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 who have you been? Who knows? Who's, who's been involved with this? Who's, nobody. That's why I called you. No, no. This has been going on for months. For months. And nobody knows, how, how has nobody known this? Well, I just kept thinking I could handle it, or I just kept thinking I could, I just kept this, I just kept that. I'm telling you, this is a major, major issue. So what is the Bible going to say to us to live successfully in the shadow of the return of Christ? I mean, these are so shockingly impractical on the surface. These are the blanks that if you didn't have the text in front of you, nobody's going to fill in with the right word. Never. Because they're just... We just think so many other things would be so much more important, so we'd put other things in there. Okay, so according to verse 7, we pray. We pray. Now think about how we, how we think about prayer. We think about prayer as, well, prayer is to help me. Prayer is to help me, you know, get things that I need. Most people approach prayer as this, this you know, that's, that's how they are able to talk to God about their needs. But this text is talking to saved people about the end coming. And this is, a, this is a different, whole different kind of praying. So the command in verse 7 is that we are to be level-headed and clear-minded. That would be synonyms for the words self-controlled and sober-minded. Trying to give you some understanding of what that might mean. 
So Peter is saying that we need to pray, but for the sake of our prayers, we need to, we need to make sure that we are self-controlled, that we're sober-minded, that we're clear-headed. Now notice what Peter does. He connects these two attributes to prayer. And he does this because this is a lesson he learned the hard way. The hard way. Now, what would be the opposite of being self-controlled and sober-minded or clear-minded? What would be the opposite of, of these two things? Well, the exact opposite of them would, would, e- would either be to be uh, under the influence of something or to be asleep which is exactly what we find in Matthew chapter 26. Here Jesus is at the the most vulnerable moment of his life on earth in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to Peter, James, and John, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus goes into... This moment, now remember, Jesus never goes into any moment not knowing what the moment is because he's fully God and fully man. So he's experiencing these moments, yet he knows what they are as he's going into them. So he goes into this moment where he's more vulnerable than he's ever been and ever will be as far as, you know, with the Father and, and until the cross... When he experiences separation from the Father, this is the greatest agony that he he is going to undergo. And he goes in and he takes Peter, James, and John with him to the inner part of the garden. Why does he do that? So he takes them in and they fall asleep. They fail miserably. Jesus knows they're going to fail miserably. Before he takes them in, he knows they're going to fail miserably. And yet, what does he do? He takes them in anyway. So my first question is, why would Jesus take these three people who are prone to fail with him into this most intimate conversation he's about to have with the the Father who, who don't have any ability or authority to resolve his problem. They can't fix his problem. Are we agreeing on that? There's no chance they can fix the problem. He takes them with him in. Why would he do that? Knowing that they're going to fail, but he does it anyway. I mean, that's got to be a giant red flag saying, hey, God's trying to teach us something here. What do you and I do when we have to have the most critical, serious, intimate, life-altering conversation? We get everybody else out of the room. We don't want anybody to hear that conversation. We make that as private as we can possibly make it. 
Jesus brings people, failures into it. He brings his community into it. He invites them in. We don't do that. And if we did, the only reason we would is because the person that we're inviting in has some capacity. They bring something to the table that can help ease or resolve or not Jesus. He brings them in just to have them there. Now Peter is now teaching us out of his failure and restoration. Peter's invited in. Peter falls asleep. And what happens? Exactly what Jesus warned against. He drifted off into sin and temptation. What happens in Peter's life immediately following the moment right there that he falls asleep? His slide into destruction starts right there. You know what the very next thing that happens is? Judas and the guards show up. Peter whips his sword out and doesn't even know what he's doing. Chops off a guy's ear. Gets rebuked for that. Oh, that's just the beginning of his debacle. The next thing you know, he's looking... Jesus straight in the eye, denying that he ever knows him to a little girl. Everything that he's learned, everything that he's seen, he goes in a tailspin into sin and temptation. You see, Peter's warning to us is to not do what he did in the garden. It's to make sure that we understand this is important. You know, I don't know why they fell asleep. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. So if I were to say, it would just be conjecture. But I can tell you this. They weren't self-controlled or sober-minded, were they? They were neither of those two things. Because to be those two things, you you wouldn't have fallen asleep. So, the underlying principle here, this will start to become clear as we move forward, is this. The harder life gets, the greater the temptation to drift into worldly escapes. Right? When do we we tend to fall into or drift into or walk into sin and temptation? In difficulty the vast majority of the poor decisions that we make are made under great duress and pressure which is when we tend to isolate ourselves which is when which is why we are so vulnerable to not being self-controlled and sober-minded because we're under pressure, because we're in duress, because we, everything seems to be falling apart at the seams. Life seems to be dealing us a, a, 
a hand that we're, we're not able to play. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. We don't. We panic. We make bad decisions. We start searching for ways to escape. We start searching for ways to get away from what's hurting us, to numb the pain, to get out of it, to change our situation. We start getting desperate. We start thinking thoughts we haven't thought in a long time. We start considering things we thought we wouldn't consider anymore. All of these things come under pressure. Remember, this whole conversation started with pressure. The end is at hand. Be self-disciplined and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Huh. So the first admonition is to pray. The second one from verse 8 is to love. To love. And this gets even more unnatural seeming verse 8 above all so now we're going to the end is at hand we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers above all so now we're not just saying well and in addition to but now we're heightening the level of intensity keep loving one another earnestly Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hmm. Okay, first of all, the word translated in the ESV earnestly in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. That word means to stretch. Like to exhaust, to, you know, to pull to its limit. So that's the sort of way in which we're to love one another to the point of stretching. So now remember, all of this is the context of this whole conversation is pressure. So there's a principle, the harder life gets, not only the greater the temptation to to fall into trouble, but the greater our need for each other. It's not just drift into worldly escapes, but the greater our need for each other. So what Peter's teaching us, what the Scripture's teaching us, is that as the pressure increases and the temptation to try to take a shortcut or try to do something that we ought not do or to make foolish decisions or whatever the case may be, increases... What's the solution? The solution is is to take people in the garden with you. Please listen to what I'm saying. How many times do I have to say in how many different ways? The Lone Ranger perishes. I'm just telling you. And I I know you. I know how you are. 
There are so many people that carry the banner of Christ. And the truth of the matter is, is that nobody apart from their spouse, possibly their children, no one else really knows them. You don't let people in. When you're, when you're struggling, you don't want people to know. And you make up things like you don't want to be a burden to people. You don't want to this. You don't want to that. I mean, I know. I mean, I do the same thing. You just don't. You don't bear your soul to anybody. You, you, don't want, you don't want to feel vulnerable. You don't want to get hurt. You don't want to... Listen, above all, keep loving one another, stretchingly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I'm sure that like me, you have heard love covers a multitude of sins used in every possible way and context. But can we just clarify this once and for all, at least for us that are in the room, so you will forever know what this verse means? Because it's, it's a very important principle. It's a very important verse. But when the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins, what does that mean? Whose sin? What sin? What does that mean? Let me ask you a question. Is that your sin? And if it is your sin, then what love is it that's covering your sin? Do you think that you can love yourself and cover up your sin? No. Loving yourself is probably going to create more sin. So you know what that verse means? It means... Love covers a multitude of other people's sin. Uh-huh. It's the only thing it can mean. Everyone should know this. But yet you hear people quoting this verse, talking about this all the time, but they have like they have no idea what it's talking about. It's very simple. Love covers a multitude of other people's sin. Your love for other people has impact on their sin. Their love for you has impact on your sin. You don't love them and they don't love you and neither one of you, your sin is impacted. What you don't want to do is keep the reins tucked in. Protect yourself. Put the walls up. Keep making excuses. I'm just telling you, it is, a, it is a disastrous mistake on your part to not be in community. And the person who's up here imploring you to do that is the most socially resistant person that he knows. But I know what the Bible says. And so I will not allow myself 
to wall myself in to my demise. And I will not because it's wrong. It's sin. It will harm you. It will harm others. It's not God's intent. So in order for our love to cover a multitude of other people's sin, this is going to be wonderfully Let's think it through. So, for your love to cover other people's sin, let's start thinking about it. What is other people's sin? What, in order for that to be true, which it is because it's right there in Scripture, in order for that to be true, I can just right now tell you some things that must be true about your love in order for this to work. Like, for example... Your love cannot impact other people's sin unless your love is willing to forgive offenses, can it? Because if you're not willing to forgive offenses, well, then you can't love anybody. You certainly can't love me. I mean, just ask my wife. So without even knowing any specifics, in order for you to obey the command and teaching of Scripture, you know automatically that walking into it, you have to be a person of forgiveness, which is the entire New Testament teaching. When someone says, I just can't forgive, I say, well, that's going to be eternally painful. You better figure it out. You better figure it out quick. But no, no, this is saying you need to walk into community with people knowing full well that in order for your love to impact their sin, you're going to have to be a forgiving person. Because guess what? Their sin is going to negatively impact you. In other words, what do you think you're going to do? Walk around and tap strangers on the shoulder and say, Hey, uh, can we have a close relationship because I would like my love to impact your sin? No. Guess what? In order for that to happen, it's the people close enough to you for their sin to hurt you and harm you and disappoint you and frustrate you. Those are the people. But you got to love. You see, because just think about what, what happens relationally where love is lacking. You know, where there's, there's, a, there's not love. Then the words that are being shared between two people that are lacking love, there's going to be distrust. There's going to be suspicion. Isn't it amazing how we, you know, it's very, it's very disappointing how so oftentimes when I'm having conversations with people that they've already come to this negative conclusion. What? You don't even know anything about it, and yet you've already... You're already upset about something that you know nothing about 
And half the time, don't even give me a chance to explain it. You just think the worst. Where does that come from? You know where that comes from? It's a lack of love. That's what it is. You have a love problem. That's the first way you know there's a love problem. You're suspicious. If you're, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're suspicious of them, you've got a love problem. There's always some... In Matthew chapter 24, here's what the Bible says. Then they would deliver up, they would deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is Jesus saying this. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So Jesus is sort of laying out this, this chain of negative consequences that are going to happen when all of this breaks loose in the end. And then in verse 12, here's what he says. And because, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Isn't that fascinating? That love will grow cold because of lawlessness. Where there once was love, it will dry up, it will harden up, it will become cold because of this lawlessness. Jesus is equating, so what's the opposite of lawlessness? Lawfulness. And what law are we talking about? Are we talking about the speed limit? No. We're talking about this law. Lawfulness leads to loveliness. Lawlessness leads to lovelessness. It's right there. You see, if, if our love is going to impact other people's sin, we're going to have to endure hardship. We're going to have to endure injustice. For the sake of people. We're going to have to be able to love people through difficulty. You see, if I only love you when it's convenient or you behave right or every, it's, it's, you know, it's, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy, well, then nothing's ever going to change. I mean, then my love's not going to impact your sin. It's not going to cover a multitude of sin. But when you sin against me and I love you anyway, now that... When you, when you start to, when you start to uh, go through hardship and maybe start to move in towards lawlessness or into lawlessness and maybe harden up your heart, and then I press into you, I get closer to you. The more bristly you get, I get closer. You're trying to get everyone away, and I'm pushing in. Now that, that covers a multitude of sin. See, what happens is love drives out defensiveness, doesn't it? Yes. Love crushes grudges. Are you harboring any bitterness in your heart towards anyone? Grudges that you're carrying around with you? That's a love problem. It's a love problem. The Bible says it's going to create a root in your heart, and you're going to, if you don't deal with it swiftly, it's going to turn into a huge problem. 
And at the base of all of those injustices and all of those is a perceived somewhere where you, you perceived one thing and it was another thing. And so therefore you've... So here's what Peter's saying. Because the end is at hand, our love has to stretch to cover a multitude of sins. Because we're human people and we fail a lot. So Peter's saying this to us. He's saying, keep on loving one another and keep doing life together, MMBC. Because getting across the finish line to the open arms of Christ is a team effort. Don't pull away, press in. So you know what? Okay, just quickly. There's a lot of people that I interact with and a lot of people that I love that have a lot of problems and struggles and issues. And one of the big problems that I find is that they they have trouble building deep abiding relationships with other people. And so when this issue comes up about what Peter's talking about, they start saying, well, you know, I mean, I try, but, you know, it doesn't work. I mean, I've tried to reach out. I've tried to connect with people in my Sunday school class. I've tried to connect with people in my D group. I've tried to connect with people, you know, and I try and I try and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work. And what is all of that telling you? Is it because of them and them and them and them and them and them and them? I mean, at what point do you finally realize you're the problem? You're the common denominator in all of this. And so here's what that tells me. You're not willing to do what it takes. You're not willing to love in such a way as it'll cover a multitude of sins. You want people to be in your life, but you really won't. Either one of two things has to be true. One, you won't let anybody all the way in. Or you let people in, but then don't, aren't open to change, aren't open to counsel, aren't open to wisdom, aren't open to, so they get frustrated, they move on. I've never seen a person who was open, willing to open themselves up and invite people into wonderful, close fellowship and relationship and were open to change. I've never seen that person be lonely. I've never seen that. You're the problem. So either A, you won't let people in or B, you won't change. It's one of those two things. I guarantee you, I guarantee it's true. But you're not here to hear my opinion, so let's just keep reading and the Scripture will show you. Look at verse 9. So now on top of this, where do we go from here? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay. 
As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hmm. The end is near. Now, you really would have guessed that the Bible says the end is near. Pressure is on. It's about to get serious. So you know what you need to do? Show hospitality. You, you never in a million years come to that conclusion. Show hospitality. You see, this is pulling the scab off some wounds in here, isn't it? I mean, I see you loners. I see you. You don't want people at your house. You don't want people in your business. You like to keep them at a safe distance. You'll let them know the things you're willing to let them know, but that's as close as they're coming. But God's given you a spiritual gift or a set of spiritual gifts. Every single person in the room. Last Sunday in Starting Point, we, it would be week five. And every time we come around to week five, everyone in the class takes a spiritual gifts assessment. And whenever we do that, one of the things, and I talk to them about their spiritual gifts and explain to them what they are and how important they are and that they need to use them and so on and so forth. And it's painful. So I don't do it every time because, you know, it's one of those things where if you know it's going to hurt, sometimes you just don't do it because you know it's going to hurt anyway. But every once in a while, I'm just a glutton for punishment. So I say to the class, how many of you in the class has been in church for decades and you've never taken a spiritual gifts assessment. You've never had anybody have a conversation with you about your spiritual gifts. And there's always hand goes up. There's a lady in there who's been in church, I'm, I'm thinking about 40 years. Never taken a spiritual gifts test. Doesn't know anything about spiritual gifts. Doesn't know she has any, what they are, anything. How is that possible? The Bible commands you to use them. There's only one rule regarding spiritual gifts, and it's that you use them. You are commanded to use it. It's not optional. It's not negotiable. So you better be figuring out how God's put you together. So, the battle to press on till the end is a community project. Notice, who, who, are we, who are we using the spiritual gifts? So, is the person with um, these spiritual gifts, so when you speak the oracles of God, is that, what are you, like in your bedroom with the door shut talking to yourself? 
Is that what that is? When it says you have the gift of serving and you do it with the strength of God, is that like meeting all your own needs, like making sure that you're taking care of yourself? Let me ask you a question. How exactly have you been, are you now, or will you in the future intend to use the gift you're commanded to use apart from community? How is that possible? Have you ever read the list of spiritual gifts? What are you going to do? Cook a wonderful dinner for yourself and say, look, God, I'm hospitable. You think I just walk around in my study with the door shut and preach sermons to myself? I mean, think about how bizarre it is. I mean... It's not rocket science. It's right there. It's impossible to do this thing. It is impossible apart from community. All right, so part two, the end is coming. So the first one is, look, the end is coming, so what do you, you, need, to, you need to pull together. You need to pray for other people around you. You need to love the people around you. So the second part, the end is coming. Now what we're going to see is, well, as you're doing the things I just told you the first time, it's because you need to understand that don't be surprised when things get worse. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial, when it comes, to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, well, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, let's jump in. Notice that the suffering that Peter mentions will only be felt by people who live like Jesus and openly declare allegiance to him. Notice all the suffering listed as positive except for one place, which is in verse 15, where it says, but none of you should suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. So that don't, there's a difference between suffering for doing evil and suffering for doing good. And notice all of this good is about declaring the name of Christ or living as Jesus lived or being bold in your faith that's going to bring suffering upon you for being a the person that God created you to be. Declaring allegiance to Him is going to bring suffering on you. Living well is going to bring pain. Just like living poorly is. But they're different. Because when you live rightly and it brings suffering upon you, you glorify God in that. That's a blessing. Sure. 
So undercover Christians with invisible, in quotations, faith will suffer the same way the world suffers in a cursed and broken creation. You see, there is a suffering There's a difference between suffering because you are boldly and opening and openly declaring your allegiance to Christ and all and everyone else. You see the people who who are who may or may not be you know they're 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 you know they pretend and profess to be believers but they're undercover and they're secretive and so they suffer just like lost people. There's no difference. But the people who are living boldly for the gospel suffer in a unique way. The only way to suffer in the way that's described here positively is to be bold. There's no way you can insert some cold, dead, calloused, self-centered churchgoer into this equation. It doesn't work. They're suffering just like the pagans. See, in this text, the cause of suffering is about commitment to Christ. But the type of suffering is going to vary. I mean, it, it varies depending on the person, the situation. But this suffering is brought on by commitment. So Peter's pressing us to ask some questions here. Because look, this is why he quotes Proverbs 11.31 when it says, If the righteous is scarcely saved. Think about that. What the Bible teaches about the end is that when Christ returns, Most churches will go on fine. The parking lot will still be full of cars. Sunday school classes will still be full of people. It's a narrow gate and few find it. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Everything the Bible says about the return of Christ tells you it won't be anything like you think it is. Read Matthew chapter 7. People are screaming. They're screaming, Lord, Lord, and they're naming all of their achievements, all of their spiritual activities, all of the things that they did. And Jesus is like, I never knew you. I never knew you. You did all those things for yourself. You didn't do those things for me. So the, the question is, well, is it obvious that the object of our affection is Jesus? That's a great question. Is that obvious about you? Do the people that know you well, they all say, oh, definitely the object of your affection is Christ. That's what you definitely live for. That's what 
you get excited about. That's what you are devoted to. That's what's the priority in your life. Is that how that goes? I was having a conversation with a uh, church leader in a different part of the country, and we were talking about some things, and they were asking me some questions, and uh, I said, you know, I often wonder, like, you know, all these years you've been at the same church in the Bible Belt. Like, how does that work? I said, you, you cry a lot. It's brutally hard. It'd be so much easier if I was in Washington State or Rhode Island or somewhere. It's brutally hard. And I, and I told him a story about a conversation that me and Pastor Matt had where, you know, we're just sitting together, enjoying each other's company, and, uh, you know, our families are visiting together, our kids are playing, and the television's on, and on the TV, are, it's driving rain. It's freezing cold. I mean, it's the most miserable weather conditions you can imagine. And there's 100,000 people packed into a stadium. And they are cheering and ranting and raving and just obsessed. And they... They've spent all their money to be able to do that. And what do you think is going to happen tomorrow morning in church? You think those people are going to be in church? You think they're that jacked up about church? You think they're... They're obsessed. They will stand in the driving, freezing rain with their wife and their children and watch a ball game. And so we started having a conversation about what would happen. What if we had church where you weren't even in the rain or the cold, but you had to stand and you couldn't sit down. And for my sermon, that'd be a challenge. (laughs) What would happen? And believe me, there wasn't any laughing between me and Matt that night. Think about it. No, who's going to be here? If I preached sermons in the rain, who would be here? And they will... They pay to be able to stand in the rain. That's a a brutal culture to carry the gospel in.
That's what you call devotion. That's what you call love. Don't tell me about love. Show me. You know what love is? Love is what you promote. You make obvious what's the source of your affection. By what you talk about. By what you plaster all over everything. You want, you're proud of it. You want everyone to know. You're not suffering for loving Jesus. But you gladly and willingly and joyfully and rabidly suffer for your team. You see... Is your affection for your Savior on display within your sphere of influence? Do people know? Do people see? Can people tell? Because the thing about it is, is affection's one of those things that you can't you can't hide, can you? See, if you're around me and my family, you're gonna, you can tell that I love my family. You're not going to wonder. You know, I wonder if Tony loves his wife. If you're around me, you know I love my wife. If you're around me, you know I love my children. If people are around me when I'm around you, people know that I love you. People know that I love this church. You don't have to know me very well to know that. You come close to me, you can tell what I love. And you know what? I can tell what you love. And so can everybody else. Because affection permeates right out of us. So when suffering comes, let's get practical and pull this together. When suffering comes... I'll, I'll bring this all the way around home, and then we'll go home, okay? When suffering comes, our tendency is to get frustrated with God. When really hard things happen to us, when we get really bad news, we get frustrated with God. We don't know why God would let that happen. We don't understand why God would allow that. And here's the shocking thing. The shocking thing is that as horrible as it is in the moment that you find out you have stage 4 cancer or the moment that the phone rings and it's the highway patrol and your loved one's been killed in a head-on collision or you get home and your house is burned to the ground or whatever the situation is, they're all horrible. But what is so shocking about the horror of the moment when you're shaking your fist at God and you're saying, how could you let this happen? The shocking thing about that is the thousand upon thousand upon thousand of days that preceded that day that never one time when life was going good did you look at God and say, God, why are you being so good to me? 
You never ask the question of God, why are you being good to me? Why do you do anything for me? But as soon as it goes bad, the finger points at God. We start questioning, why are you punishing me? What have I done? What's this? What's that? We have all of these questions. Then we start asking questions like, well, does this even pay? Does this whole, I mean, I don't know. I've tried this living for God thing. And look at what, does this work? It's not working. I'm not, it's, it's too hard. I mean, if I knew this was going to happen, then I wouldn't even have done that all along. I don't know. I'm, I'm confused. My faith is rattled. It's shattered. Is it all worth it? So here's my question for you. Is God good because what I experience is good? You see, again, it's just driving the point home that we started with tonight. There are so many things that everyone affirms, and yet few people live to conviction. When I say God is good... Oh, man, what are you talking about? We love to sing about the goodness of God. We love to talk about the goodness of God. We love to, we love to say how good God is. Okay. Why is he good? How do you know that he's good? Isn't it true that everyone's big on the goodness of God when things are good? But if God's good when things are good, then an unchanging God must still be good when things are horrible. But you see, saying it doesn't, doesn't make it true, doesn't solve it, doesn't... No, no. Saying it doesn't do anything. You got to live it. But in order to live it, you have to experience it. You have to know it. Something greater has to happen. You can't, I can't just say to myself over and over, I'm Superman, I'm Superman, I'm Superman, I'm Superman. Nothing's changing. So how do you know that God's good? How do you know that? Like, I really want you to answer that question in your head. I want you to answer the question, if you believe that God is good, then I want you in your head right now to say to yourself, here's how I know that God is good. And if you're saying to yourself something like, because the Bible says that he's good, I'm saying, well, that's insufficient. I want you to be specific. Because let me tell you what's not going to work when you find out you have stage four cancer. Well, the Bible says God's good, but I still have stage four cancer. No, no. You've got to have a theology of the goodness of God that, that transcends anything you experience. So back to my original question, how do you know that God is good? So here's what I did. I sat down at my desk and I took out a piece of paper and I got a pencil. And I said, I'm going to write a list of all the ways that I know God's good. When my life is a disaster, when my heart is broken, when everything's falling apart around me, I'm going to write a list of all the ways that I know God is good. And so I wrote a big list. Not for you, for me. I'm going to give you five of them to get you going so you can write your own list. 
Here's five ways that I know God's good regardless of what's going on around me, within me, through me, whatever it is. And they never change. They never waver. They always stand as a pillar of the goodness of God regardless of anything else that's going on. Number one, I know that God is good because He created us with choice to obey. You see, if God wasn't good, He wouldn't have gave us choice. The reason I know that God is good is because He put the tree in the garden. Because if He wouldn't have put the tree in the garden, if He didn't give me a choice, if my relationship with God was an arranged marriage that I didn't have any say-so about that that's just the way it has to be and I don't get to choose anything, it doesn't have anything to do with me, then we don't have any kind of love, intimate relationship. Because you know what you can't do? You can't force me to genuinely love anyone or anything. That is impossible. But you can love me and give me the choice of whether or not I want to love you in return. And when those two things come together, you got something amazing. And only a God who is unbelievably good. Because remember, he doesn't need you and me. And so if he just wanted a bunch of minions to do his bidding, he would have just taken the tree out of the garden. And that's just the way it would have been. And we'd all be robotic just doing everything that we have to do with no choice about it. But he didn't do that. He said, no, I want a relationship with you, but there's only one way that I'm interested in it. If it's real and genuine, in order for that to be, you got to have choice. That, to me, is an amazingly good God. A God that has all power and authority and doesn't need anything and still creates us in His image and gives us choice declares to me. It makes me want to run to Him more than almost anything else. And that's just number one. Number two, He found a way to rescue us. You see... We can be rescued, and here's the beauty of it. It wasn't our idea. We were the ones hopelessly without a solution, doomed, and God made provision to rescue us and brought it to our attention and made it available to us so that we could receive it. Now, how good is that? Who does that? Who goes and pays the highest possible price to do the hardest possible thing To create a way to redeem us out of our self-inflicted doom. A incredibly wonderful good God. And you know what? That's true if I'm standing over the casket of my loved one. That's still true. That never changes. Number three. It was his idea that we call him father. You see, we didn't come up with that on our own. Think about how amazing God is. That he, he would have been unbelievably good if He would have showed up on the scene and allowed us to know Him and rescue us and give us freedom of choice. But certainly it would be understandable if the only way we could refer to Him as Sir or Mr. or Majesty or Potentate or something. But the fact that in all of that, have you ever known anybody who was really important, who really meant a lot to you, or really stood out, who you felt so privileged to be able to know, and then when you met them or knew them and they looked at you and said, no, no, just call me by my first name. And you're like, 
Yeah. Well, forget them. God, by his own merit, thought, providence, and creativity, decided that we would refer to him as Father. That is indisputable evidence. He is remarkably good. You need two more? I mean, I'm overwhelmed now. I'm ready to do a lap right now. Number four. He loves the unlovable. You see, no matter how horrible my life is coming apart at the seams, every page of the Bible shows me that God is pursuing and loving the people that no one else wants to love. The hardest cases. The most messed up people, the ones who bring the least to the table, the least gifted, least talented, least, every, I mean, everything. He's never hanging around. Jesus never hangs around anybody with any power or any merit or any popular. He's around the degenerates of society that no one else even wants to fool with. That's who he is loving. That is an unbelievably good God. And then number five, his plan has grace built into it. Okay, we're late. We got to go, but I got to share this with you. I mean, come on. Think about it. God chooses a people that aren't a people. And who are these people? They're not a people. No one. No, no. They're not even. You know what they are? They're a bunch of vagabond slaves. And he goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my people out of this group of rejects. He gets them and he plucks them up. The, the least likely people on the planet Earth. He picks them. He makes them his people. Then he takes the most powerful structure on Earth. And he totally humiliates it on behalf of these people. Then he leads them out. Think about it. He could have just snapped his fingers and all the Israelites disappeared. And then they could have been, you know, transported magically over into the promised land and went to Mount Sinai and all of that. But God didn't do that. He went, no, no. He was showing out. He did it with all the pageants pageantry and all the splendor of frogs and water turning into blood and all these things happening and then the culmination of it all they're going to run across the Red Sea being look they're running with their spatulas and their pots and their raggedy clothes they look like a bunch of morons I mean this giant army with with weapons and chariots and all their armor are chasing these raggedy slaves with their pots and pans and they're looking behind them and they're walking across a sea on dry land with water mounted up on both sides they cross over look behind them and here comes the world's most powerful army into the middle he swallows them up 
so that they would never, ever forget that he is the God of the universe, that he loves them, that he's chosen them, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. So then he brings them to Mount Sinai. He calls Moses up to the top of the mountain, and he says, now here is the way you need to live. Here is the way that's going to make you prosper. This is the way you were intended to live, because I'm your creator. I know, so do these things, because these are what I made you to do. And while he's doing that, these fools are having the Bacchus parade going around the bottom of the thing, having a giant party down there while Moses is up there receiving the Ten Commandments and built in to the whole plan all along. This is what you need to do, but here's the thing. The whole Bible after that, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is the explanation of the sacrificial system. Why do we need a sacrificial system? He says, do this, but I know you can't, so here's all the provision for your failure that I know you're going to have. Here's all the grace that I know you're going to need. Here's all the ways in which you can make right with me the things you can't make right any other way. The whole sacrificial system is grace. What God should have done is said, here's the 10 things you do. If you don't do these, you're going to die. And that's the end of the story. But he didn't do that. He said, here's the 10 things you need to do. But when you fail, because I know you will, here's how you can make it right. Until I finally make it right once and for all. So listen to me. I don't know. I don't know what lies out there in your future. I don't know what's there today, tomorrow, what's coming. But come hell or high water, let me tell you something. God is a good God. He's a good God, not because you're experiencing good things, because of what he's done proves his goodness. And he's good because regardless of what happens to you in this life, you're going to be with him forever and eternity, and everything wrong is going to be made right. And so what? Whatever you got to live through now to get to where we're going to go there, let's do it all for the glory of God in the way in which he said to do it. Amen? Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to be together.